Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest back by the woodpile today is a fellow by the name of Keith Harris, who's had quite a life in and around his central Kentucky home. He's restored a number of antique cars, wrote some books, sang in multiple Southern Gospel quartets, wrote a hit song or two, and preached as many or more sermons. Today, he's going to talk a bit about all of that, including the time that he got into a tangle with some Satanists. But he starts off explaining the difference between repairing a car and restoring it. To restore one, you would take it from the frame up. I mean, uh, take the body off the frame, redo the frame, uh, all the suspension and everything, and uh, rebuild the engine, just you know everything to someone like myself that's a little ignorant about these things it almost (laughs) sounds like there's hardly anything left of the original car well you can put them back original there's a lot of aftermarket parts Mm -hmm. that you can get that's just like the original but to say yes this is the original thing we you know you can't do that are there collectors that want all original Mm -hmm. yeah there are and uh just like the Model A that I've reworked and everything. Of course, I put a V8 and all that in it. Uh, a lot of the old-timers would hang me by the nearest <laughs> to the nearest tree for doing that, but I wanted something I could get out in traffic and not be afraid to get run over. Okay. Well, let's talk about your Model A. That's the one you have now. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, town sedan, Okay. four-door town sedan. That's Ford? Mm-hmm. All right. Do you know much about the history of Ford with their Model A's, Model T's, and all that? Well, the way I understand it, uh, Henry Ford wanted to continue to make the Model T. But everybody else was updating their cars, and it was kind of leaving the Model T behind. And his son, Edsel, is the one that wanted the Model A. That's my understanding of it. Mm. And, of course, I don't know just how many millions of them they sold, but... Uh, it was a good move. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've heard that story about Henry Ford because people complain that he only made black cars. <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, you can have any color any you want. Any color you want, as long as it's black. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, you said you put a V8 in yours. Mm-hmm. How difficult was that? Not too awfully bad. I, what I did, I took uh, the body off the frame. I used the original frame, but I boxed it in. In other words, they're a C-frame, and I, I, I put a side on it to stiffen it up because the original frame was made to flex because of the roads and the holes in the road and everything. It was made to flex. Well, if you put a V8 in one without boxing the frame or making it stiff, uh, it'll twist the frame. <laughs> wow. So that was a pretty tough car then. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I guess they were all pretty tough. Yeah, they, they had to be with all the roads. Was the Model A like a dream of yours, or did... Yes, the Model A, I don't know why, but I've always just loved that body style. 
and the four-door. I like it a lot better than the two-door. I thought, well, I'll never find another barn find. Yeah, talk about that. How did you find it? A friend of mine in Marion, Kentucky actually found it. It belonged to a dentist in Catawba. And he found it and had been sitting in in, uh, their garage. He died in 1970 or thereabouts. And uh, I still have the 1970 plates that were on it. And uh, he passed away and it sat in that garage for 43 years. And uh, this friend of mine found it. And he was going to do what I've done with it, but it it was pretty involved. Uh So he decided to sell it. And uh, I saw it on the internet and contacted him. And uh, then it sat in my garage for like four years or, you know, while I was working on it and everything. So it didn't even see rain for like 47 years. My goodness. (laughs) What's your wife think of your hobby? She's all right with it. I mean, I've traded cars so much, she knows that I don't buy anything that I can't get my money back or make some yeah you know well i guess they're worse habits to have well if i had them sitting all over the yard it would be different but that's true i was more thinking about you running around town getting wasted and and chasing women but (laughs) (laughs) there are things worse right I remember when I was a teenager, Pinto was like the butt of all jokes. Right, right. But you're saying that their engines are pretty good, actually. Uh, they actually are. They can, uh, we call it soup them up, mm-hmm. you know, and add a lot of horsepower to them and uh, race them, uh, the engines. Mm-hmm. But the body style, you know, wasn't the greatest in the world. But there are several <laughs> Pinto clubs now. Well, really? Yeah, where so, they collect them. and In your MG, you've got a Pinto engine. I have a Pinto engine in it. That's great. Are you ever going to restore a Gremlin? No. <laughs> okay. Part of the whole, I, I may be misjudging people who restore cars, but... I, I get a sense that part of the payoff mm-hmm. is taking it around to shows or parking lots where they have old-timey car day or whatever. Yes. Uh, do you enjoy that? I do. It's not to show off your car, right. you know, not necessarily, <laughs> but to go and uh, find people with like interest, and uh, you'll find parts, you know, people okay. who have parts, sit around and tell car stories, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just uh, people of a like passion. Have you made some lifelong friends, I guess? I have. Yeah. Uh-huh. Two guys that lives not a mile uh, from me in either direction. I found they've, they've got several old cars. Now they go to my church. Do you incorporate uh, restoration into your sermons? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> it's just a natural thing because it's partly me. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's a witness when you go out uh, and talk to car guys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, invite them to church and talk to them about the Lord and so forth. Right. I know some people would kind of poo-poo it and say, oh, you're wasting time. You need to be out, you know, preaching and and, and Mm -hmm. feeding the poor or what have you. But there is a maybe a more meditative uh, quality, almost how a prayer might be when you're working on those cars, I would assume. Right. Old cars are 
are kind of my solace. Some men go fishing, some men go hunting, which I love to hunt. Yeah. And but uh, the old cars are my solace, and I can I can get out there, and of course I'm thinking about things when I'm doing that. I can I can pray while I'm doing that. I can have a TV going or something, watch mm-hmm. old westerns or something while I'm doing that. But it's just kind of a solace, right? Because uh, I I pastor a church, mm-hmm. and you know I think everybody needs a, a getaway. Do you have conversations with God under the hood? Of course. And I have conversations with me a lot of times when I bump my head. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty good. I will meet you in the waters you have crossed. But in the midst of stormy sailing, what do we do? They fearfully cried. Out of the darkness came his answer. Over on the other side. In the car world, what are some holy grails of cars that that you would love to like stumble across? Oh, well, I'd like to find a Duesenberg set somewhere. and They're very expensive cars, and uh, they bring good money. Now, I did find one that one of my buddies have that is a 35 Studebaker, uh, two doors, has suicide doors on it and uh-huh. all this, and uh, I'd like to have that. Uh-huh. But uh, You're content with what you got? I'm content. If I... Never have another car. I'll be content. You're wearing a Frog Follies t-shirt. Mm-hmm. That's a big thing up in Evansville. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you go every year? I have for the past uh, three or four years. I used to sing in a gospel quartet and travel all over, mm-hmm. you know, the eastern half mostly of the United States. And uh, it just seemed every time we would have a singing up north and we would travel through Evansville, the frog fathers were going on. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, I would really love to do that because I love old cars. I'd really love to do that. And to explain to folks who don't know what frog follies are, what is it? Um, it's just a, a big car show. It's a pre-49 car show. Mm-hmm. And they have a swap meet there uh, where you can buy and sell parts and all that so stuff. So if I come dragging a 1950s car, they're... Uh, you got to park in a parking lot. <laughs> well, everybody else. Okay. Yeah. But uh, I would go past that, and I thought, man, I'd like to do that. But I didn't really want to do that more than what I was doing, mm-hmm. you know, singing gospel music. Uh, but I wanted to. And then in uh, 2004, I had been preaching for some time. The Lord called me into the ministry to pastor and so when I started pastoring, uh, then I had more time during the week and everything, and, and I got to get back into my hobby of uh, old cars. And I thought, hey, I can grow the Frog Follies. I haven't taken a car up there yet. But, but you I, go attend. But I, but I do go. Yeah. And I hope to take that Model A this year. You have to pay so much for a parking spot or whatever. Mm-hmm. There again, you get to meet people and talk with them people of like passion and see what others have done to their car to uh, you might find a better way to do the steering or whatever okay so people are pretty generous with their information or their knowledge they are and still i find more and more people uh, who have old vehicles and i'm amazed at how many are sitting in garages all over town you know and, Uh. and and different places is it frustrating for you to see like where someone has, like you say, 
has a car out in their barn that they just have no interest in, in doing anything <laughs> with, but they won't sell it either. No, they won't sell it either. That used to bother me somewhat because you'd see a car rusting down mm-hmm. and you'd say, or I'd say to myself, they're just going to let that sit there and ruin. But it finally dawned on me, even though they might not be able to fix it, that you're actually trying to buy their dream. That settled in my mind that they've got a dream, that's their car, they own that, and I don't want to buy their dream. Uh, I'd still like to have it, and I <laughs> sure do hate to see them just rust down. Right. But, uh, you know, I've seen them with trees growing up through. Oh, man. But, uh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. And they say, well, we're going to fix that one day, and you know they're not. I'll cross someday. So you sang in a Southern Gospel group. Talk about your love of gospel music, how that started. I began singing gospel as far back as I can remember. Mom and Dad sang, and they used to stand me on a piano bench, and I would sing because nobody could see me unless they did. (laughs) As a little kid. As a little kid. And then when I was uh, 10 years old, I started singing in a gospel quartet. Really? And uh, Of other children? or uh, just No, it, it was adults. I've always dealt with uh, people older. Uh, and then as I got older, people who were younger. Right. <laughs> However, uh, uh, we would do three and four bookings every weekend. And uh, I did that for several, several years. What are the names of some of these groups that you're a part of? Oh, my. The first one was the Dittany Five. <laughs> yeah. Okay, explain that one. Uh, that was a, the, kind of the nickname of the uh, New Union General Baptist Church. I think it came uh, from way back uh, when there was a store there, a Dittany store or something. Mm-hmm. I think it was mom and pop type thing. Okay. But... And I've even heard stories about bubble gum, but I'm not sure. If I, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure about all that. But anyway, we started uh, seeing we traveled, you know, two or three states around mm-hmm. and, and would go and sing at a lot of uh, associational meetings mm-hmm. where they would have representatives from 40, 50 churches. And then we started spreading out to different places. Of course, we're in the town of Madisonville, Kentucky, mm-hmm. which... The Happy Goodmans were right from and really almost kind of put Madisonville on the map in the Southern Gospel <laughs> world in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, did you uh, ever sing with them? or I never did sing uh, with them on stage. Now, our first long play album we did here in Madisonville. Was it done at the Happy Goodman studio? It was. Yeah. Uh, we had one instance in there. They had shag carpet all over the inside of it at that time. But the problem with it was static electricity. Oh, no. And I remember our uh, baritone singer at that time, he was singing and he got a little too close to the mic, Uh and I saw it jump, arc about an inch out. Electricity. Yeah, busted his lip. Dang. And, of course, it ruined the recording, too, because, you pow! Wow. (laughs) Anyway, my my cousin went on to... uh, help build, lay out, and engineer 
uh, recording studios, mm -hmm. and uh, several of them in Nashville. So he doesn't put shag carpet in them? <laughs> no. Okay. So the, the biggest group that I, I guess you're associated with is Southern Sound? Southern Sound, yeah. yes. So talk about how you got involved with them. Our bass singer, Charles Brantley, uh, wanted to get a group going. And he met my cousin down at the uh, Quartet Convention one year in Nashville. And he said, let's get together a group. And being he wasn't really interested. At that time, he had just got out of uh, being the sound engineer for uh, Ronnie Millsap. Mm -hmm. And he, he said, I'm not interested. He said, who else have you got? And uh, Charles said, me and you. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'm thinking about asking Keith if he would uh, sing baritone. And Ben didn't think I would. And he said, well, if you can get Keith, oh, I will. And uh, Charles called me up, and I said, sure. <laughs> you know, let's get together and see what it sounds like. So we, we practiced hard every week uh, for over six months before we ever went out anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it worked well for us. Right. How many albums did you all cut? Oh, gosh, I, I really don't know. Uh, we did several. Uh, I've written several songs. One of those, Jordan's Swelling Tide, went to number 18 on national charts. Wow. Uh, that Southern Sound put out. Have other people recorded y'all songs? Uh, they have, yeah. I had several songs that uh, the royalty checks were pretty good for a while. Oh, that's cool, yeah. <laughs> but they've kind of dwindled now right. since <laughs> since I've been out since 2004 and I haven't written anything else. Right. Uh, it seems like uh, while I was singing and my my heart and mind was in that mode that I could write songs. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of times we would be driving down the road coming from a singing or going to one, and I would uh, say to my wife, I'd say, Cindy, write this down. Uh -huh. I remember one time, uh, When We're Called Away is the name of the song, and before that I had written some verses. They were real slow, and I didn't have a course. And we were coming back from a singing, and I said, Cindy, write this down. And I had a chorus in my head, but no verses. And and it was fast. And I thought, man, here I am. I've got a, got some verses written with no chorus and a chorus written with no. And it it's like speed those verses up, put it, you know, and they fit together perfectly. And a lot of times I'd be here at uh, here at the house, and I'd be, you know, working on the piano a little bit, and a song would come to me, and I'd just write it down, yeah. and then I would record all four parts, so so they could get the idea of of my song, mm -hmm. and uh, we recorded several. That's cool. Like that. Did you sing at the gospel quartet convention? We did. Now, when I sang with them, we weren't on the main stage. Uh, we would sing at the the side stages or whatever mm -hmm. then later on and after i was gone they did sing on the main stage for several years if you want to go to heaven come along with me get on board oh the gospel train to glory get on board rain is leaving any time we were at the quartet convention one year and we had a booth set up and we were there with uh some radio personalities and 
we look down the aisle and here comes Charles Brantley. Of course, he was coming down through there with a strut and speaking to everybody, and it was funny uh, because he had about 15 foot of toilet paper trailing on his <laughs> on his shoe. Oh wow! <laughs> now, toilet paper's come up a lot in these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then one time he had never eaten pistachios, and so uh, we were sitting around. Uh, we'd gone got a got a motel room that time we all met and we were talking having snacks and Charles says what are these we told him and he just got a handful and put it in his mouth Ugh. and he chomped down on him he and then he spit them out he said I'll be John Brown that was one of his <laughs> words he, he said what in the world he'd put them in with his with the shell on <laughs> right wow we got down the floor laughing at him but we've had a lot of good Good times mm-hmm. on the road. What are some maybe funny horror stories? We were in Tuscaloosa, uh, Alabama, and we were going going right along. We were on our way to uh, sing, and I look out the window, and black smoke is just rolling out the back. And uh, so we we pull over, and we still had to go. So we got a uh, U-Haul. Luckily, we were, or fortunately, I don't believe in luck, we were close to a U-Haul. So we got a big truck. We all jammed in the front of it, put our equipment in the back, and went on to the singing that night. And, uh, of course, we had another singing up further north from there the next day. So we had to get back into Nashville. Well... We couldn't all ride that far, jammed into the cab of that truck. So two of us decided to ride in the back. I thought, well, we'll ride back there and get some rest, you know, because we're going to travel overnight. I don't know why we didn't think about it, because in in our bunks in the bus, we had some real thick mattresses. Mm -hmm. We didn't think about that. I got up in the part that sticks over the cab, Uh and... uh, Every time that they'd make a turn or anything, I would slide all over the place, and it was pitch black. Roger, uh, our tenor singer, was on the uh, on one of the speakers uh, down oh, in man. the main part of it. What I did finally, so I wouldn't be rolling around, I would would get a little sleep till and it'd make a bad turn or something. I took my belt and put it around those straps that they strap things to the. Uh-huh. <laughs> the wall with, and I put that around, uh, around me, and that's what. And I was so sore that next morning, it was awful. Uh, I learned on that trip never forget to get your mattress. <laughs> <laughs> you met a lot of people, I guess, that were fans of your music. Did you ever get any nice feedback that made you feel like all these the struggles were worth it? Uh, yes, when you saw someone come to the Lord or they, they sent you information about that or mm-hmm. you experienced that during a concert or, or whatever, that uh, made it all worth it. Did you ever correspond with fans that maybe had spiritual uh, questions or problems? Yes, but mainly at the concerts. Okay. When we were uh, back at the uh, uh, product table or something like that and there would be several of us there, uh, someone may need something and one of us would go and and uh, 
try our best to help. I'm shouting, shouting glory, glory, glory on the way. A couple years ago, I had this idea of what if a bunch of Satanists had it out for a Southern Gospel group? So I wrote this story, and I've actually put it up on the podcast, uh, where it's, it's partly funny, but par- partly a little bit serious. So I named the story, I think it was something like uh, Southern Gospel Quartet Witch Fighters. <laughs> well, okay. so me and you were talking one day, we worked together for the people listening. And I, I think I mentioned it, and you say, well, that's, that ain't far from reality, buddy. Right, right. And so talk about what happened to you. We were sitting in a church service one time. This was when I sang with another group called Sounds of Faith. But we were at a regular church service. We were sitting in, in the back. A fellow said, I want to talk to you guys. There was three preachers there. I, I was one of them. And he said, I want to... Talk to you guys a minute. He said, I've been out and plowing the field, and he told us where, and there was an old slave house out in the middle of this field. And he said, I hear sounds and everything coming from that house. I have seen a light in the window of that place. And he said, it's scary. He said, would you guys care to go down there, and we'll look at that. Wow. So we went down. We go in this uh, this old house. It's in disarray. You can imagine how it had fallen in and, and all this. But there was a stairway going up upstairs. And there were some markings on the wall and whatnot. So we travel upstairs. And when we get upstairs, there is a room that sits over to its side. And it says on the left of the door, there's a big picture of a wolf there. And it says, beware, Lucaroo sees you. Lucaroo? Yeah. It's wolf, I think. Yeah. But anyway, and it had six, six, six over the doorpost. One on each side, one on top. So we open the door. And as we open the door, we go in this door. And it's kind of an electric feeling in the air. Uh, and there's no shag carpet. <laughs> and there's no shag carpet. And we I go in, and right in the center of the room is this uh, large five-pointed star, a pentagram, and symbols in, you know, between each of the uh, pinnacles of it. Lordy. And an uh, uh, altar in the middle. All right, it had some kind of something on the altar. It looked like dried blood, mm. but evidently they'd been doing some kind of sacrifice of probably animals but then on the wall written in blood where it was 666 and then it had six daggers six daggers six daggers on another wall on the the right side as you go in there's a desk and behind that desk is this real hideous creature uh, that had been painted on the wall so something was going on and I thought wow and there was a light book Bub, they had electricity run up there somehow. I don't know. You know, in my spirit, you know, I thought, Lord, this is this is real. This stuff is real. And it's like he uh, spoke in my spirit and said, it's going to be okay. Yeah. 
after that we left one of the preachers said i'm not having anything to do with that we're we're over what i did singing with this group one night at our concert we were in a large outside venue we had a generator on our bus and we could operate our equipment anywhere and so some people had asked us to come to sing you know in this big open field which we did and there were i don't know how many people there i mean it was a large large crowd and so i told about this didn't think anything about it a couple of weeks after that we were singing at a church and in our bus we in the front part we had a lounge area and all this we were sitting up there and uh, Kevin English at that time, he was our tenor singer, he said, I got a letter in the mail I want you guys to read. Well, it wasn't actually a letter, but it was about three three-by-five cards on there. And it had all kinds of satanic symbols on it, and on these cards, and it said, we're putting a curse on your group. <laughs> Or so forth, oh, wow. okay? And he said, what are we going to do about this? Well, at, the point, at that time, I knew what we needed to do, but I didn't do it. That's the Christian <laughs> Christian uh, curse, I guess, is we just don't do what we know to do. So we put it up. We go into the service. That's a morning service. And we go into this service. And I'd been singing for over 40 years and never saw anything like this. We were set up. It's kind of a large church. We had our main speakers coming out. All of a sudden, smoke goes to rolling out, and the the A side of our PA just goes dead. And the service itself was just a cold, cold feeling. So then we turn around the monitor so the people could still hear, mm-hmm. and we're singing a few more songs. Bang they go out i mean this has not happened with you know with the yeah. smoke and the whole nine yards so we sang a few uh without any pa or anything mm-hmm. so then when we dismissed the preacher comes up and says man he said guys i don't know what's going on he said but something's really bad so he said let's go let's go pray i know y'all got a singing tonight so let's go let's go pray mm-hmm. we go over we have prayer but it's like the prayers are just rolling off the top of your head and hitting the floor. I mean, it's mm-hmm. nothing there. And uh, so we go back out to the the bus. We loaded up our equipment, got back on the bus. And I said, guys, before we start this bus or move or anything, we need to have prayer over those letters, over those cards. Mm-hmm. And I said, if you guys don't believe in this. I said, you've seen what's happened, experienced all this. I'm going to go back in the back. We had a dressing room in the back. I'm going to go back there and I'm going to pray over these. If y'all believe in the power of prayer, mm-hmm. you come with me. To try to counter the curse? Yeah. Yeah. And I said, but if you don't believe, then you stay up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, all of us went to the back. And we stood there. Everybody held with the uh, thumb and finger all the way around that Mm -hmm. and I began to pray and I I put my hand up in the air Mm -hmm. and I began to pray over this 
And whenever I said, in Jesus' name, uh, lift this off of here, I started tingling in my hands all the way through my body. And I'm not sure, but I think my boot heels even tingled. <laughs> After that, uh, we took off. We called some of our friends that were coming from north to south, and we were going south to north, and we met them, and they, they let us borrow their equipment. And we went on to our singing uh, up north. We used their equipment, and I'm telling you what, we had a spiritual time that night. It was really good. At that time, I was working with a, uh, working at Potter and Brumfield in Marion, Kentucky. And I was telling one of my friends, and he said, I'd like to see those. So the next day, I brought them. The cards. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. So that was on a Thursday. And on Friday, he said, could I take these and show them to my pastor? He made a copy of them okay. and took them. And I said, well, what did your pastor think about it? And he said, they didn't make it to the pastor. And I said, uh, why is that? He said, I went home that night. And he said, I was tired. And so I put them in my drawer in the house. I went upstairs and I went to bed. And he said, I woke up, and he said it was the most cold. I mean, he said, and it was warm temperature-wise. Mm -hmm. But he said there was this cold, eerie feeling in that room. And I said, it's those, that letter. Mm -hmm. He said, I went and got them and burned them. And he said, so they never did make it. At that, I do not to this day know what happened to those cards. They got misplaced or something. They're they're gone. Yeah, I, I had them at home and stored in a certain place. I don't know if I was going to use that in some of my books later. I've written some books, by the way, too. But right. So you think that the house that y'all visited, somehow they found out you had been there? Uh, well, see, I told this before a group of, in that singing uh, you know, where we set up in the field. Right. I told them about this. So there was evidently, my feeling is, there was some Satanist or whatever in the in that crowd that were gathered. There. This is in the same town as the house was? Uh, or close, no. Close by no, it? Or? No, no. It was probably a couple hundred miles away. Really? A friend of mine later said, I would like to see that house. He wanted to know. Yeah. And so we go, we go down there. Uh, we you, you've got to walk about a mile up the road, so we get there. We get out to where uh, the house. Uh, I don't know if it's still there or not, but at that time the whole house had caved in on itself. But later, after that, I wanted to know the enemy, mm -hmm. so I started getting materials mm -hmm. to learn about this Satanism thing and get you know, dig down into it. And as I began to study these things, it's kind of like I was in a spiritual funnel and I could feel myself being dragged down and dragged mm -hmm. down and dragged down. And I had to do a lot of biblical study and comparison mm -hmm. and all this to get me out of that, out of that hole. And uh, I still have some of that material today because mm -hmm. I don't want anybody else to have it. But uh, So this is source material. It's not a Christian writing about it. It's no, actual, no. No, like no. the Satanic Bible or something like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
people from the occult. Right. You know, and it's it's come in handy in a way because there's a lot of definitions of words and stuff and things that I will can look up mm -hmm. and see where they originated in mm -hmm. Satanism. Right. Stuff. So it's it's been a trip. You better run. Run when I say somebody's calling you and you better run. Run when I say somebody's calling you and you better run. run so as I mentioned before, how we know each other is we're both the school bus drivers. Right. In fact, we moved to Madisonville because my wife got a job here. Mm -hmm. And I came up with her to help her move in. And I hadn't gotten up here to move in permanently just yet. And I remember walking to Farrell's, mm -hmm. a little burger joint, to get a cup of coffee. And uh, a guy starts talking to me, and I mentioned that I'm about to get there in about a month or so permanently, yeah. and I'll be looking for a job. He said, buddy, if you want a job tomorrow, you could, <laughs> I'll get you one. And, and it was Mike Garrigan, uh -huh. who was another school bus driver. Right. And by the time I got all my papers in order, as far as like the Kentucky driver's license and all that, I submitted an application, and the uh -huh. very next day, you called me. I mean, it was, <laughs> right. you know, the, the ink wasn't even dry yet. <laughs> so talk about that, because I'm sure you would agree that anything where you're working with children, especially with a right. lot of troubled children, which mm -hmm. I know my neighborhood, is, it has got some major problems. Right. It's a bit of a ministry without even trying to be a ministry. Right. Talk about some of the experiences, something you've learned. One thing... Uh, that I'm amazed by and was amazed by is the amount of special needs children we do have in this area. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the special needs children are on regular school buses, not mm -hmm. special needs bus. Therefore, it's given a little more patience to me because the child that's giving trouble on the bus may actually need to have more uh, studies done on him or whatever mm -hmm. that he might be in the category of special needs so it it's a hair-raising job and you have to be a special kind of person to drive a school bus mm -hmm. you have to be a caring person a compassionate person a patient person all of those are tried <laughs> and someone who can multitask <laughs> yeah yeah because you have to drive watch traffic removing a vehicle that is about as long as a house down a road and also <laughs> right. trying to keep the kids from killing each other <laughs> right right now when i started several years ago we didn't have uh anybody on the bus to help right uh, which now we have monitors on the buses most of them mm -hmm. and uh, that really helps to curtail fights yeah. and uh you know children who just won't sit down mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's for safety reasons well you have uh, that you know but you can't get the evidence i mean you have the evidence but you don't have the proof of abuse going on in homes and uh, that is very very sad of course when a child reports that or you find out and the kid, you, then you have to report it. That's sad because you don't want to get people in trouble, but there again, you don't want children abused either. Right. Man, that, I was pretty depressed about that because I had a girl come to me and tell me how she was abused by the the person that was keeping her. It wasn't even her no, right. mother. I think she it might have been a foster care or just maybe right. a family member or something. 
and I gathered all the evidence and I sent it to the state and they never did anything. They never wow. investigated or nothing. And I had pictures. They never asked for the pictures. I told them I could give them to them. They said, well, we'll get back with you. They never did. Huh. It broke my heart. I thought, man, yeah. what are we doing here? But what are some of the rewards of doing this? <laughs> well, I'm still uh, reaping rewards. I've been doing it in, uh, 12, 13 years, something like that. Just now, a lot of the uh, kids that I carried on the bus, I'm seeing in restaurants, I'm seeing different places, uh, businesses. As, as adults. As adults, and uh, they still remember. So it's always good that you treat people fairly because uh, a lot of these young people now working in restaurants, it'd be a good place to get back at you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but you you can form lifelong friendships as well just by being fair. Not screaming at the kids, but being firm in, in what you say uh -huh. and tell them the reason why you have to have it because of their safety or whatever. That's been rewarding. Or you go to Walmart or some outlet store and all of a sudden these kids run up and grab you. You know, Mr. Keith, Mr. Keith, and they come up and grab you and the parents are looking like, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Then you explain the bus driver and said, oh, yeah, they talk about you or whatever. Those are rewarding times. There's heartbreak in it, but there's also fun times. There was this little girl, I'll not call her name, but she, was, she wasn't very tall at all. And we got new buses that had high back seats. And, of course, the kids would always move up before their uh, time to get off, and I would talk to them, you know, how was your day, da-da-da. And this little girl, I asked her how her day was and all this, real good. I said, how do you like these this new bus? She said, I don't like these high back seats. I said, you don't like the seats? And she said, no, they make me feel like a midget. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. Yeah, and another one, they said, uh, this little boy, I was sitting next to him as I was riding with another driver. And I sat next to this little boy, and I knew who his grandparents were. And I said, aren't you so-and-so's, uh, aren't they uh, your grandmother? He goes, no. And I said, really? He said, no. Now, he's in kindergarten. He says, that's my mom-mom. I said, uh -huh. oh, that, oh, okay, your mom-mom. I said, what about your papa? He said, that's my pop-pop. And we sat there just for a minute, and he said, my mama's got a boyfriend. I said, Really? And I said, well, what's his name? And he said, baby. <laughs> so times like that are funny, but you build a relationship with the kids, it pays off. Hey, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, no problem. Enjoy it. If you're still in a Southern Gospel mood, you might give... In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 111, A Listen, where we talk with Jim Loving, who sang for the Good Time Singers and many other groups back in the day. Or, if you want to hear more Engines Revved Up, there's 144, where we get a tour of the Dream Car Museum in Evansville, Indiana. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. Like a 
Across to the other side of Jordan, where Jesus is. Uh,